Liverpool 3 0. Call it, take it quickly, Origi! Yeah! Hello and welcome to the Anfield Central podcast. Number seven is coming home. It's official. Great win for Liverpool against Leipzig in Budapest. I'm joined by Paddy and Max. How are you guys? Good enough. Yeah. Thanks for saying. Yeah, good, mate. Um, always good to be on the uh, on the pod. Fantastic. So there's only one place to start, really. A 2-0 win for Liverpool against RB Leipzig in Budapest in the Champions League. Overall impression, reaction, guys? Yeah, no, all good. It's... Um... Getting two away goals, even though we're not even playing away, they're away as well. But <laughs> the way it's working out, we got two away goals and a clean sheet as well. So maybe we could have performed better. I don't know, arguably, some might say it. But um, the result is all that mattered, really, at the, in hindsight. Um, so, yeah, happy days. Yeah, I, I've got to agree with Paddy on that one. Um, I think that we could have performed better. I think um, a few times, um, much as he played really well, I thought Curtis Jones... I feel like he has a bit of a, the Emre Chan disease of holding on to the ball for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he he played brilliantly for the most part, but he did get us in trouble once or twice, trying to dribble too much in midfield. But other than that, I thought we played really well, um, created good chances. When they got through, Salah and Mane were clinical. And I think the biggest boost was Ozan Kabat looked great. Yeah, he looked really like he looks like he settled in fairly well, even though he's obviously just been at the club for basically a week. Uh, and obviously, given what happened in the Leicester game as well, where he was not going to blame him solely, obviously, because it was a bit of a mix-up with him and Alisson, but he was part of quite a fairly large blunder in, in on his debut. He didn't seem to be showing any signs of that playing on his mind. Yeah, no, he, he's... He kind of remind me of the kind of a lover in our skirt type, obviously, without the mistake, thankfully. But um, he loves to go attack the ball. He, he kind of charges out of the line. He goes, tries to win headers and tries to win tackles. Um, it's kind of an aggression you don't really see with young centre-backs. So it's probably good that he has that element to his game already. It's just um, with Liverpool, with the likes of Van Dijk and Gomez, they're kind of more passive in the tackle, passive trying to win the ball. So um, he might complement them fairly well if, if they eventually get to play with him. So, um, yeah, I think he looked good last night. He didn't put a foot wrong, really. Yeah, I think he. Um, uh, one thing that we're going to really see help us, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him get a couple of goals through it, is he looks really, really solid in the air. Um, yeah. I know that his aerial win rate at Schalke was, um, was quite good, and he displayed that um, uh, against Leipzig. I thought in the air he was really, really dominant, and that's something we've suffered from uh, since... Van Dijk and Co have been out whenever the only time we've really had that presence aerially has been when Nat Phillips has played. And in terms of the kind of attack and the way that Liverpool went about the game, I thought it was really impressive how we were kind of got back to basics in terms of the pressing side of the game. Obviously, the that pressing style has been synonymous with Klopp since he came to Liverpool. But I thought last night the way that the front three for me, you know, Salomon, the way they pressed the Leipzig defense, setting traps that Leipzig would fall into it looked a lot more smoother than it has done in the past few games. Yeah, definitely. I think Leipzig were playing such a high line as well, so it's probably made it a bit easier to, to press because the, the field was smaller. There's, you have less ground to cover when um, when the Leipzig back line was up as far as the half, up as far as the centre circle. So that probably helps and it might have maybe played into our hands a bit in that sense. But um, definitely the way they're setting traps and Firmino was springing and um, Salah and Mane sweeping up as well it definitely helped us a lot especially for the um, was it first goal second goal Mane's one yeah the no, second no, no, sorry yeah no first one Salah's one sorry they pressed him and forced a mistake and um, yeah so that's like the Liverpool of all really yeah I think that's something that we've been uh, we've been badly missing is um, that intensity of the press up front um, I thought the man who really epitomised the um conviction um in his present was Mo Salah I think after that um after that tweet that he put out and he doesn't <laughs> often tweet that sort of thing um like James Milner's at it every week whenever we lose the whole you know YNWA like you know we'll keep going for next week kind of thing so it kind of becomes white noise but I think with Salah he he looked like he meant what he said and he pressed really well, um, looked committed. And, you know, um, he's the second highest scorer in Europe after Robert Lewandowski at the moment. So uh, 
yeah, I think we're only going to see him get better. And I think we could be seeing another 40 golf season from him. I think with Salah as well, he's one of those players where it's getting to the stage now where the numbers almost disguise how good he is in the sense when you look at Messi or Ronaldo and their kind of goal scoring statistics over the, over the years, you think you look at the, the number 30 next to a Messi season or Ronaldo season. It's like, yeah, that's decent. But you forget how good that actually is just because they've done it for so long. And it's got to the stage now with Salah where every single season he's hitting 20, 25, 30 goals. And it just almost seems normal. And you kind of forget, actually, that's those, that, those kind of numbers only happen with the very, very, very best players in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think Messi and Ronaldo have nearly ruined the sport in, in that sense that like somebody can be having an absolutely phenomenal season and it just gets undermined because it's not, you know, 40 goals like Messi or Ronaldo get, whereas nobody in history is putting up numbers like that before. So I think Salah, you look down through the history of the Premier League, like all the biggest names are Alan Shearer's or Andy Coles, like Salah's goals per game ratio is up there with them. Like, and he should be remembered when he leaves the club eventually, hopefully not for a good while yet, but when he does leave the club, he should certainly go down as one of the best in Premier League history. Well, I mean, this is it, isn't it? I mean, he, he holds the record for the most goals scored by one player in a 38-game season. Like, of all the forwards who've played in the Premier League, Ronaldo, um, Henri, um, uh, Andy, Andy Cole, um, you know, all these great strikers, Didier Drogba, Wayne Rooney, none of them have got there. And I think he won't be... He doesn't seem to get the appreciation that most players with those numbers would. Um, I think he'll only truly be appreciated for how good he is once he leaves England. Well, why do we think that is? Because we look back on all these players over the years. Like Ronaldo is probably the most recent example of someone who scored that many goals on a consistent basis in, in the Premier League. Obviously, we've had great strikers since, like Aguero, but he's kind of never really reached those kind of numbers due to he's often hampered by injury. But when looking back on great strikers forwards in, in the Premier League era. I don't know whether it's the kind of tribalism that football and football on social media seems to bring with it these days that you know you almost can't compliment or praise opposition players. But for me, even still, even within the media and the high profile kind of journalists and pundits that we see regularly, I still don't think for me that Salah gets that same respect as a Ronaldo, as a Shearer, as a Omri. And I just don't see why. I think a lot of it is to do with aesthetics. I mean, Salah's not the type of person who's going to take on a man and do a few step overs and like get past. Well, he does the odd time, of course, but like I find his touch isn't the best. I don't really like seeing him in wide areas. I prefer seeing him in the box, in and around the box, cutting just onto his left foot, maybe. But I think because people see him as a winger, they kind of think like he should be taking his man on more. He should be dribbling um, through packs of players, which he doesn't really do. Um, so I think there's a lot of people who just think he's he's kind of the way he plays. It's just not really that aesthetically pleasing to watch, I suppose. I think part of it is that players, whenever they're compared to those of the past, I see this mainly with Virgil van Dijk. Um, when they're compared to, you know, if Mo Salah is compared to, say, um, Thierry Henry, um, I'm, I personally think Henry is better than Salah. I should make it clear. Um, but... I think that when a player from now is compared to a player of the past, if their name isn't Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo, most of the time that nostalgia sort of yeah. makes you makes you think, you know, oh, that like, you know, it was nowhere near as good because you only have the memories of the great things those players did. Like, you know, Henri with the scoop and then volley against Man United or Drobba with a volley against Everton or whatever. Whereas Salah, you still have, you know, the occasional dive, you have the misplaced pass um, in your head. And I think when you're comparing a player to a player, particularly who's left the Premier League, you only think of their good points. Like Cristiano Ronaldo, first season at Man United, I just remember a guy who did constant stepovers with no end product. But everyone forgets that. They only think of him in 2008 when he was this god, like, you know, just smashing goals from 30 yards routinely. Yeah, I think that's a very good point as well. But just before we move on from the Salah chat, you obviously flagged up that statistic um, about him being the second highest scorer in Europe other than Lewandowski. Um, so when you think of Liverpool's season so far, and 
obviously on the whole, it's been a, a poor, disappointing season. It's kind of surprising to see that he, you know, he's up there in that list. But another statistic that from last night is that he's now scored 118 goals for Liverpool Football Club. That's the same amount as Ian St. John. And Ian St. John did it in 425 games, while Salah's done it in 186, which is 239 games less. Obviously, we're talking different eras and there's more games in the modern era than them. But we're talking about, you know, a legendary great of the club who he's matched for goals now. And I just think when he does eventually leave the club, I hope that he is kind of, from, from our own fan base, as, as much as anything, is remembered and respected in, in that same way that these legends like Rush, Dalglish, Barnes, St. John and the past are, because I think he, he deserves it. Yeah, definitely. I think so. I think he's kind of been really the figurehead, especially from attacking standpoint of this this era of Liverpool. He's kind of, he is the main man going forward as much as Mane and Firmino have helped him. But the goals, you can't you can't um, deny the, the sheer number of goals and how much that has helped this club get to where we are at the moment. So I think he has scored on as one of the all-time greats, and especially as, yeah, I suppose if you're playing him, if you're to put him, make an all-time Liverpool eleven, he'd be on the right wing, I suppose. So it should probably help him get into that. But um, I think it's different eras and everything, but it's just the sheer amount of goals for a winger is it's insane, really. I think you have the same issue that Mohamed Salah is going to, at the moment being compared with the likes of Ian John. Like statistically, Mo Salah is miles ahead of Ian John, as you've pointed out. And he will be remembered as one of the best players Liverpool's ever had. But I think he'll only be remembered that way by the majority of people in about 10 years' time when he's not playing yeah. for Liverpool anymore. And he'll be compared. And the next striker or winger who comes along in 10 years and is, you know, making the cop stand up, thank God when fans will be back, um, uh, uh, will be compared to Salah. And people will say, no, that's madness. You can't compare him to Mohamed Salah. And the cycle will continue. Yeah, I think um, a good example of that was when when Luis Suarez was, for me anyway, when Luis Suarez was doing his thing, and there was a quite often a debate within the fan base, Torres or Suarez, because obviously Suarez came in and Torres went out. And around maybe 2013, 2014, when Suarez was really, you know, Liverpool's best player and probably the best forward in the Premier League at the time, a lot of debate was had who was better, Torres or Suarez. And I was always very much Torres, because given my age and... Torres was kind of the first real number nine forward who came, I fell in love with, and then he broke my heart when he went to Chelsea. Whereas when Suarez went to Barcelona, I didn't have the same emotional attachment because I'd grown up a little bit almost. Um, so I was always very much a Fernando Torres man. But looking back now, I can almost think, well, technically Suarez probably probably was a better player. Um, but emotionally, I'd always had that attachment to Torres. And I think it's just an interesting thing that you have within football and within individual fan bases as well. Yeah, definitely. Everyone has their favourites. Like Moving on, Max has already flagged Curtis Jones' performance yesterday. And this is something I did want to highlight. I was actually a little bit surprised, Max, that you mentioned you thought he kind of maybe held on to the ball a bit too much. Because I was going to say one of his biggest strengths, I thought, was actually retaining possession. Uh, <laughs> Um, and especially playing in, in kind of tight areas. Shall we just expand on his kind of performance, not just last night, but over the last kind of two or three fixtures? In the Man City and Leicester games, obviously they were negative results, but I thought he was probably one of the few highlights. Yeah, and you could see it when he when he went off, we kind of capitulated. I'm not sure there's a direct correlation there. It might just be chance or whatever, but it, it still happened. And um, Kurt Jones, I mean, at the start of the season, we were thinking... Right, Lalana is leaving. Jones is just going to replace him as our seventh choice midfielder or whatever it is. And he's going to play maybe, I don't know, 10 games this season off the bench. But he's actually, he's come in and he's he's fighting for a starting place with the very best we have. I know with injuries and everything now, we haven't much choice but to play him. But um, the way he just, his close control, I actually think is probably the best at the club. Like, I actually think his first touch, his dribbling ability is probably other than maybe Mane, I like I think he's a better first touch than Salah. He's a better first touch, well, sometimes Firmino. Um, so I think like once he expands on the rest of his game, he's going to improve and, and he's going to be a superstar for us. I I would say that um, I I wouldn't want anyone to think that I um, that I thought Curtis Jones played badly against Leipzig. I think he did really well. I think he his passing was really good. His pressing was good. I I just it's more a general comment of a weakness in his game, which I think is something that you see with young players all the time. They always yeah. have one one or two weaknesses in their game. And 
he he does have a little bit of a tendency, I think, sometimes to hold on to the ball too long and get himself into trouble, which I did notice once or twice against Leipzig. But in terms of his progression this season, I think he's gone from, you know, as Paddy said, like the seventh choice central midfielder to someone who you could argue um, should be starting at the moment with the injury problems that um, that we're having. And I think he'll only develop. And I'm sure that with coaching and learning from experienced midfielders like Thiago and Henderson, he'll be able to, you know, grind out those little flaws from his game and he can only get better. Moving on from last night's performance, not to bring the mood down a little bit, but just kind of focus on a few little pieces that came out in the wake of the Leicester defeat, which obviously was probably a bigger blow than the Manchester City one. How worrying do we think the team's reaction it was to conceding not only the James Madison equaliser, but then the Jamie Vardy goal following the mix-up between Allison and Kabak? We've got this reputation since Klopp's been here, particularly the last two or three years, of being that mentality monsters. Lots of kind of last-minute wins and dramatic um, performances where we've came back to win when it looked like we were dead and buried. Is this something we need to worry about, the team's mentality? I think you can look at it two ways. I think you can think, right, okay, that was, what, eight, nine, ten minutes of just complete mental capitulation, which... I, it's a strong argument um, when you're the better team for 70 or 80 minutes and then that just happens and three goals go in one after the other. It's it's easy to, to point a finger and say they've just mentally collapsed there. But then I also think you can look at it and say, right, okay, Ozan Kavak's at the club a week, two weeks. He's had probably, I don't know, maybe seven or eight training sessions um, and a lot of those won't be full sessions. It'll be recovery and, and preparation and that sort of thing. And um, he's obviously coming in. He has good English. We've seen in interviews and that. But like his obviously there was there was a lack of communication with Allison, and then there was one with Thiago as well for two of the goals. So I think probably the finger should nearly be pointed to a lack of communication with the new twenty-year-old centre back um, coming into the side. It's it's an easier place to look at it. I think. I think when you talk about men like mentality. Mentality in a game is um, based very firmly in the context in which that game is surrounded. So if you think about the mentality giants, Liverpool for the last two and a half seasons have been in a pretty constant state of positivity. Like, you know, they're climbing up the table, they're going towards the title or they're going towards the Champions League. And there's always been that context that Liverpool is improving. Liverpool is doing well, even in the face of one loss. And that positivity outside is going to help the players out mentally. Whereas if you think about the press and the outside influences that came before Leicester, you had um, Jurgen Klopp's uh, poor mum passing away. May she rest in peace. Um, You have all of the negative newspaper articles about uh, the title being taken away. You have the realisation that the chances of catching City and retaining the title are minimal at best. You have the injuries. You have so many things that are piling in on these players. And that's not even talking about lockdown and, and some yes. of them not being able to see their families. That I, I think they would be superhuman if they didn't let that get to them. And yes, it's worrying that there is this sort of capitulation. But I think if you put any team in the situation that Liverpool have been um, for the last two months and put them in a position where they've let in a goal that is highly controversial after playing 77 minutes really well with a young kid at centre-back alongside a midfielder, um, I think I think you realistically expect something maybe not that spectacular, but you would expect that to have a hit. It, they would be inhuman not to be hit by that. And I think as well the injuries is a really good point to raise because obviously injuries have been talked about so much this season in the context of Liverpool and opposition fans or rival fans might say well injuries happen you know to everyone every team has to suffer through injuries during the course of a season but I think this is simply not the case like I can't remember a time ever before where a team have had three of their senior centre-backs all three of their first choice centre-backs suffer um, season ending ending injuries and not to mention injuries to Jota, who at the time was, you know, not the top scorer, but he'd scored a fantastic amount of goals and he was kind of a bit more of a positive outlet in terms of 
maybe if one of the front three wasn't quite performing, we had another kind of attacking option that we hadn't had before. He suffered a massive injury. Thiago was kind of the stellar big name signing that the club came in, brought in in the summer. He had a, an injury for several months, not to mention injuries. You know, Fabinho's had injuries, Henderson's had injuries. So many different players have had injuries and it feels like almost every week we're talking about someone else so much so that when we got the news that Fabinho was going to be out for a week or two last week I barely bat an eyelid anymore when you see Paul Joyce's tweet saying so and so is out for for however long because it's just we've got so used to it over the course of the season but in terms of the impact of those injuries on the players mentality how significant do we think that's had not only on their mentality but then their performances on the pitch are they going to be worrying about getting a knock or getting another injury because we've just seen such a sheer amount of them over the course of this year yeah it's definitely it's it's unprecedented like it's never happened before that such a, a big team has been this crippled with injuries but um i think for the players that are there they will have like there's no doubt about it they'll be worrying about like who's who's behind me who's going to be covering me if I go forward now because with Virgil van Dijk back there you can just you can relax you can say okay he's not going to make a mistake he's going to be in the right place um I'm free to do focus on my own game whereas I think now your Gino Wijnaldum's your James Milner's and they're playing they're going to be thinking about okay right I need to get back I need to to help Hendo at the back or Trent and Robertson will be thinking can I really fill that space now or do I need to just hold back a bit and um I think that's it's having a big in, impact on the players that are there, and um, I think the fact that so many players have been injured, the like the minutes that your likes of Wijnaldum and Robertson have been playing this season, it's it's unbelievable. Like so, they're they're obviously gonna suffer in a big way. I think, um, yeah, I think you another psychological impact of it is that you're almost you're almost giving yourself an excuse as a player. Like, you know, I'm not saying that the players are thinking this way. I'm just hypothesizing here. But if you're Andy Robertson, let's say, you've had Virgil van Dijk as your partner on the left side of Liverpool's defense forever. You know that when you go forward, he is going to be covering you. Um, And then he gets injured and everyone's saying, oh, Liverpool's defense isn't going to be the same. Like, you know, you you can't expect them to do it. And then psychologically, at what point is Andy Robertson going to go, you know what, yeah, like, you know, I don't, I don't have Verge next to me. Like, you know, a, a drop in performance is going to be expected. Now, Robertson's been really good this season. But, you know, you could say the same for Trent. You could say the same for anyone in the squad that, oh, we've had so many injuries. Like, you, you have to expect that there's going to be a drop off in performance. And I think if you have that mentality, even with a couple of the players in the squad, you're going to see the team suffer. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think with the manager as well, with with Klopp himself, particularly after the Leicester game, maybe not so much given the kind of how well we played last night and the, and the win against Leipzig. But I think in press conferences and stuff this season, you've been able to see a little bit more irritableness around him. He's maybe looked a little bit more kind of snappy and blunt with journalists and reporters Quite often, the reporters don't help themselves when they're clearly trying to goad him for a soundbite. But I'm just wondering if, do you think he's looking a little bit maybe fatigued with football at the moment, particularly when how intense the schedule is as well, which has also been well documented? Yeah, I think that's been the talk for the last few weeks is that he's, there's obviously big rumours he was going to walk away and all this sort of stuff that was never going to be true. He said it himself, that's just ridiculous. And um, he said in the post, in the pre-game press conference um, before the Leipzig game that he's loads of energy left in him. I, I believe him, to be honest. I don't think, um, don't think he'd, he'd lie to us. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that Jürgen's... Um, I think he would he would not have signed as long term a contract as he did if he didn't think that he had the energy that he had the um, uh, that he had the fortitude to keep going. Now, obviously, at that point, didn't know lockdown was coming. He didn't know about financial issues at the club or anything like that. But Jurgen Klopp has never struck me as the kind of guy to throw in the towel when um, uh, when things are getting tough. Um, and I mean it's. It, if my if I had lost a parent um, and had had to keep it quiet and had to try and act respectable in press conferences, I, I would get angry at stupid questions. Now, 
he like he he has not been perfect this season. I think that he hasn't covered himself in glory in a couple of press conferences. But some like sometimes managers get stressed and they take it out in the wrong way. That doesn't make him a demon. That doesn't make him a bad person. That just makes him human. Like you know, I like you can't tell me that anyone in this pandemic, whether they be a football manager, a player, or just a person, has not acted like a bit of an idiot as a result of the outside influences of everything that's happened in the last 12 months. I can tell you I have. Like, you know, I, I think expecting perfection um, of these people off the pitch as well as on it at the moment is uh, asking for something that simply isn't going to happen. Yeah, I think remembering the human being behind these footballers and football managers and personalities is so important, particularly during a time like this with, with the pandemic. And I think when you look at managers over the years who, Jurgen Klopp is not the first and he will not be the last manager to snap at a journalist. We've seen Sir Alex Ferguson refuse to do an interview on the BBC for many years for different reasons. We've seen Jose Mourinho, Pat Guardiola, like you can name any elite manager in the game and they've all had moments where they've maybe, you know, answered a question that they didn't like in it in a way that comes across a little bit obtuse. And I think... Klopp is probably one of the few managers to kind of maybe have the humility where he often does come out maybe a day or two after and say things like, I've heard him say, yeah, I was a bit of an idiot there. Or if he's ranted or raved at a referee or official, he's, you know, publicly apologised and stuff. So I think it's important to remember that these are human beings. They're not robots on a screen. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I think it was Christian Benteke who said he's your he's your friend, but he's not your best friend a few years ago. So like he has a reputation for being a, a nice, lovely man, and he obviously is. So I think you just need to cut him some slack um, when he's going through such a tough time. So another point that's kind of been doing the rounds on social media this week has been that if you go back a few years, maybe even as far back as the Kiev Champions League final against Real Madrid, Liverpool's kind of front free midfield and fullbacks have largely kind of been the same and there's just a bit of a almost concern I think in the fan base does, does the squad need a bit of a refresh is this is this current team coming towards the end of a cycle as a lot of teams you know a lot of elite teams do during the course of, of their careers yeah it's it's easy to think that anyway but I think last summer was kind of meant to be the first steps of the refresh with Thiago and Jota coming in because Thiago was meant to be our new starting midfielder, presumably alongside Fabinho and Henderson, who've been playing centre-back this year. Um, so I think he was meant to come in there and that would be the next step, the next kind of part of the evolution. And then Diogo Jota was meant to come in and, and push the front three and, and probably force one of them out of the front three, um, one of the current crops. So I think that was the plan last summer, was to, to already be a step ahead, whereas obviously this season has, has pushed us back a step. So I think um, when you look at the best kind of teams in history, you're your United, your Barcelona, the teams who've dominated over a spell over a long period, they always refresh after every couple of years. You had Barcelona's front three, Messi was always there, but you had Ronaldinho and Eto, then you had Eto and Henri, then you had Villa coming in, Pedro, Alexis Sanchez, Messi's Neymar, or Suarez and Neymar. Then um, it's just constant evolution all the time. So I think it's like that's how teams have been successful in the past. So I think that's how Liverpool can look to be successful going forward. I think Paddy's touched on something there is that when people talk about refreshing the team if you if you think about that Barcelona team yes um, the front three changed a lot but the midfield core was from for a good six seven years Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets yeah. and it was always PK at the back, Dani Alves on the right and then swap out a goal uh, centre-back or a left-back. Not because they kept buying new great players to refresh, but just because they didn't really have core players on that side. I mean, like Eric Abidal, maybe. And then you had Javier Mascherano come in. But again, they never really cemented themselves as like we are the, like, you know, the great Barcelona players. Yeah. Um, I think at Liverpool, you have, again, that solid foundation. You have Trent, Robertson... Gomez, Kabak, all in their early 20s. Um, uh, their Virgil van Dijk um, could play. Well, I, I think he'll come back from his ACL. And a lot of people don't, but I, I just think the guy is such a physical specimen. I wouldn't be surprised if he came back and bounced straight back from his ACL. And if he does, he could realistically be a world-class defender until he's 35. 
And then with midfielders, you've got um, you've got a bit more of an issue. But then again, Fabinho is still like well in his twenties. Um, you've got Curtis Jones is coming through. He's a young lad. Um, Thiago is not someone who's who is dictated by his physical characteristics and how good he is um, with um, uh, in the midfield. So I think he will stay as a top talent well into his thirties. I think the issue you start to see is in the front three because it gets to a point and you don't want to get to this point where you have a front three who are all in their thirties, whose re- whose sale value is dropping like a stone with every year they're at the club, but their contracts are so huge that you can't get rid of them, which is exactly what Barcelona had. Um, and they are now suffering the consequences in a big, big way. So uh, a little part of me would quite not, I don't want to see it. But I think a new forward coming in, not not even necessarily at the expense of one of the front three, but I think a succession plan does have to be made. And I think that the Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland rumours, while they're a lot of fun, um, I don't think are going to happen. Like Anyone who lives at Liverpool's financial situation at the moment, we're not spending £100 million bringing in another forward. But I wouldn't be surprised to see another young forward, probably a more traditional striker come in in the summer. If you wanted my bet, I I think keep an eye, um, just from a stylistic point of view, maybe on Daniel Marlon, who plays for PSB. Very quick, very mm. direct dribbler, inside forward, uh, can play as a nine or off the left. Um, already playing for Holland. I wouldn't be surprised if we made for a move as someone of that profile. Yeah, I think as well, like looking at just a track record of FSG spending habits other than world rec- record fees for Allison and Virgil van Dijk, which obviously are, they're, they're kind of the outliers. If you look at the prices we paid for the likes of Salah, Firmino, Mane, we're not going to be, and especially on wages, like Liverpool's wage structure is not, I don't think anyone's on more than 200 grand a week, which I think is Salah's salary. They're talking about Mbappe to Real Madrid and his salary being touted is in the 300, 400,000 mark. I just can't see Liverpool paying any player anywhere near that that much money on a weekly salary. Um, so I think someone of that kind of status and calibre is probably a lot more realistic. And I, you trust Klopp and Edwards, you know, their recruitment's been largely fantastic over the last three or four years anyway. So... There shouldn't be too many concerns there. Virgil van Dijk, we've just talked about, and I think a, quite a big boost is that he's now you know, back in the UK, spent a little bit of time in Dubai during his rehabilitation stuff. Just having him back in and around the training centre, and if he can you know, even just go to a few games and just be there on the touchline, how much of a boost do you think that psychologically could be, staying on that subject of mentality? I think definitely, like you can see it. Now, these days, with so much social media content coming out of clubs and that sort of thing, you can see Van Dyke is he's probably the character in the dress room. He's probably kind of the middle of all the crack and all the banter in the dress room. Um, he's kind of the one man that the players look up to as kind of like really like the kind of the cool kid on the playground, if you get me. But um, I think having him back in this back in back in Kirby will be a massive boost to everyone. Um, just his character and everything, just and I think it's probably going to be a while since the Seamets have last seen him, so I think they'll all be happy to see him again. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's definitely good news. Yeah, I think you're always gonna. I mean, as you say, Paddy. I mean, it, it just even outside of the fact that you know him coming back as a boost to the team, like you know, it's a good mate coming back um, to the training ground after um, after a terrible injury. That's going to be a, a mental boost to anyone. Um, and as you say, Paddy, he seems to be you know, right in the middle of the banter and everything in the dressing room. Uh, Joe Gomez has referred to him as like his big brother before. And I, th- I think that's the role that he plays is he plays up to the fact he's this, you know, gigantic guy. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think he likes playing that sort of big brother role. And I think having that core, um, that older, more experienced guy who can sort of, even while injured, you know, be that presence uh, in the training ground will be great for the, Young lads, especially Ozan Kabak, who is um, uh, very much placed on record that he's a huge fan of Virgil. Yes, indeed. And it will be just, fingers crossed, we might not see him this season. I think a few people are kind of tentatively hoping maybe towards the latter stages 
of this campaign he might be able to get on the pitch if he does I think that'd be a bonus but personally I would be inclined to give him as much time he needs and to you know get ready for next next season looking ahead then to the weekend it's obviously the big Merseyside derby um Everton are coming to Anfield in terms of the league table, obviously, at time of recording, Everton have not yet played Man City, so they're three points behind. But by the time that game is played, both teams could be on 40 points with Everton having a game in hand. So is this the biggest derby in years in terms of the teams competing for basically the same thing? I think so, yeah. It has to be because Liverpool and Everton don't compete for the same spots, <laughs> thankfully. Um, I think this is the first time since probably... 2004 or five, maybe when they were coming pushing for top four, um, it, it's it's massive for both teams. Like it's now more than ever, it's about getting one up on the on the local rivals, and like we can't have everything going ahead of us on the table. <laughs> yeah, um, it is a huge game. I mean, for for Liverpool to beat Leipzig in the Champions League, get a commanding lead, and then to beat Everton, particularly after losing Van Dijk and Thiago to big injuries after the last Merseyside derby, would be a huge psychological boost. And there is a distinct possibility, and I think this would be a huge boost for Liverpool. Um, obviously, you know, um, that's purely from a tactical point of view. You don't want to see anyone injured. But um, Dominic Calvert-Lewin could miss the game. And... Um, uh, his aerial prowess and how um, how much he's come on uh, this season, I think, will be hugely missed by Everton. Having that presence up front um, will really help them if they can get him back for the game. And from a kind of Everton standpoint, obviously they famously don't do well at Anfield. I don't think they've won a game at Anfield since 1999. So obviously over 20 years. Is this their, their biggest chance to to do that, given there's no there's no crowd, Liverpool's injury problems, Liverpool's Premier League form in general, particularly at Anfield, has been awful since the turn of the year, something we wouldn't expect to have been saying even three or four months ago, given how fantastic Liverpool's Anfield record was prior to that. Did, they've got to be coming into this thinking they can, you know, really, really make a statement, haven't they? Yeah, I'd have to think that if it's going to happen any year, it's going to be this year. Um, you've seen our form at Anfield has been horrendous the last few games so if Burnley can come there and get a result they're going to think like obviously we can um, Carlo Ancelotti knows enough about Liverpool that he's going to he's going to have a good game plan in mind he's going to try to stifle us and um, not play into our hands like maybe Leipzig did last night um, they're going to try to sit back and, and they're going to try to play in the counter-attack which has been our biggest problem for the last few months so um, yeah I think they're definitely going to be confident I think um, yeah uh Paddy makes a good point there. Carl Ancelotti has shown that he is not afraid to play a low block and um, and play on the counter-attack. But again, I think this is something that really hinges on Dominic Calvert-Lewin's um, fitness. If they play a low block, you need, you need an out ball. If you're going to play that kind of game, you need either pace in behind um, or you need need someone who's going to win those headers in the air. And Calvert-Lewin will do that for you. But if he is missing, then I don't think Everton has the forwards to really get that that physical presence, that ability to hold the ball up and allow their players to counter-attack. Like if, you, if you look at the Burnley game, you had Chris Wood and you had Ashley Barnes, two big, strong guys who are winning headers, um, you know, bringing the ball down, bringing their fellow teammates into play um, and that really is key to a low block and I think if Everton are missing Calvert-Lewin that really takes away from that game plan. Yeah I think the, the only other option they probably really have there is I think they've got Josh King who they brought in from Bournemouth um, he's obviously I think he's played a few games off the bench he's been more kind of off the left but what do we kind of make of Everton in general this season? Obviously they started really well they won I think three or four of their first games in a row and they you know they were they were top of the league for a short amount of time they tailed off a little bit they're currently in seventh not far off the champions league spots which is obviously their aim going into the season i don't know like is this season kind of progress for them in terms of just putting themselves back amongst the conversation for european football yeah, it definitely has to be like everton haven't been 
this good in terms of from a squad perspective in years. I mean, I actually I really liked our squad. I think there's some like savage players in there. Think of Valan, who's probably one of the best ball and midfielders in Europe. James Rodriguez has kind of fallen off a cliff. So many people think of Real Madrid, but he's still a fantastic player when he played. Um, just for whatever reasons he landed and fancy him, but he's he's a really hard working number ten. Um, which kind of goes against the general consensus of Hamas, um, and he still has that creative ability as well. Think of Richardson, you think of Calvert-Lewin. Um, these are all really good players, with, and they're still young. Well, Alan and, and Hamas aren't, but your Calvert-Lewins, your Richardsons, they're going to only get better. Um, Mason Holgate and Ben Godfrey at the back as well, I'm really impressed with all the time, every time I see him. So, um, yeah, they're definitely they're, they're on the up, I think, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I'll definitely agree with that. I, th- I think um, much as Everton love winning the transfer window, um, <laughs> I think they actually did do really, really, really good work this summer. I think bringing in, much as unfortunately injury has curtailed his um, progress a little bit, I think Alan was a fantastic signing. I remember yeah. him under Ancelotti against us at Anfield, just being an absolute monster in midfield, winning balls, progressing the ball really well. Uh, Abdullah Decore, I've always rated. Um, first time I watched him live, uh, um, I went to a, a Spurs-Watford game, and I thought this is after, uh, this is when he was heavily linked with Everton Richarlison, and I thought he was average, but I thought Decore was fantastic. <laughs> And, um, yeah, I think he was a great buy. James Rodriguez, as you say, Paddy, um, he, 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 gives you, he gives you effort. But, I mean, the main thing about James Rodriguez is that he can, he can win a game on his own. He can just hit. He'll just, he will hit that shot from 25 yards, and he's perfectly capable of putting it in the top corner. And, yeah, Liverpool have got to make sure that they don't give Rodriguez time on the ball because the guy is technically phenomenal. Team selection wise, then Fabinho and Naby Keita may be back involved if that is the case and they are fit enough to play. Would you expect Fabinho to come, you know, straight back into the starting 11? And if so, would that what would that look like? Would that look like Henderson going back into the midfield and Fabinho and Kabak being your, being your partnership or something different? I think the team picks itself. I can't see Fabinho being back considering he wasn't training yesterday. He or sorry, the day before yesterday, he wasn't back in full training. So I think. He's probably going to miss out. If he is back, then yeah, I think he goes inside Kavak and Henderson and goes into midfield to probably see Jones dropping out. Um, because we have a week off. We have a week off or we only have one game a week for the next few weeks now, which is going to be great for us. Yeah. So I think you kind of need to give Fabinho just time to to not rush him back because that's obviously what's happened to him a lot this year. Is he's he's been out, he's been out, then he's been rushed back and he's out again. So I think he needs the time. Um, with Naby, I really hope to see him off the bench. I think he could be massive for us for the rest of the year. I, I really like Naby Keita. I'm not sure if many people do, but I really like Naby Keita when he's fit. Um, so I think he could bring a whole new dimension to us again and give us a big lift because he's like Van Dyke. He's a really popular character in the dressing room. So I think everyone would be delighted to see him back. I mean, part part of me wants to see Keita back, but... I'd love to see Curtis Jones in a proper Merseyside. Like, he has played in the Merseyside derby before, but starting against Everton at Anfield, I think it would just be huge for him as a local lad. And I think he'd really bring his A game as long as he doesn't do anything stupid um, and, you know, side through a Liverpool player like, oh, I don't know, like a Jordan Pickford or a Richarlison might to a Liverpool player. <laughs> um, but you know, I make, I make no suggestions. Um, but no, I, I think um, the team, as Paddy said, pretty much picks itself. The one thing, and I know that I said this in the last podcast, I think you, I think bring if he's fit, put Ben Davies in at centre back and put Jordan Henderson in that midfield because I think having that, having that leadership quality, having that that efficiency in the press, um, and that protection for Thiago to be able to do his thing, um, I think would be really, really beneficial against Everton, particularly with James Rodriguez um, dovetailing around in between the lines. I think having Henderson there to press him and put him off his game would be great. Yeah. We've not really seen much of Davis in terms of he's not been involved in any squad yet, I don't think. So we'll have to just wait and see what his fitness is like. Obviously, Klopp said he'd taken a knock on the weekend, didn't he? So just to end on something a little bit different and just a bit of a bit of fun because we've seen a few of these going around on social media people discussing their best 
Liverpool bargains of the Premier League era. So I'm just going to ask you guys to kind of give your top three and your reasons why. For me, my kind of top three, I've kind of just focused it all around on that kind of price element. Um, not so much necessarily like the output on the pitch, but that as well, but the price is like a big thing. So for me, my top three are, I think you've got to have James Milner in there, comes in on a free transfer five years ago, still, you know, putting in a shift in, in one of the most competitive leagues in the world and the Champions League. He's won the Champions League and the Premier League. There's not much more you need to really say on him. Um, Sammy Hippier, I think, is another one you have to consider. Given the fee that he had when he came in, I think he was less than £10 million, came from, he was largely unheard of. Came in at a time where Liverpool were not the Liverpool they are now and they weren't the Liverpool of, that had been before. Him going in at centre-half, he kind of started a bit more solidity at the back, which he then formed, obviously, that partnership with Carragher and was kind of instrumental in that Champions League win in 2005. And then finally, I think Andy Robertson is my best Liverpool bargain of the Premier League era. £7 million from Hull City, a team that had been relegated at the time. Not many people fancied him. There was a lot of talk, why are we buying a player that, you know, has been not so not great for a team that's been relegated? Obviously, a lot of people hadn't watched many Hull City games, I'd suspect. Um, because he was one of their standouts. And I just think we'd always struggled at left-back, probably even as far back as John Arnorisa, who wasn't infallible defensively anyway. Robertson, he does the defensive stuff well, and he's like a massive part of Liverpool's overall attacking system, which is obviously playing those full-backs as more creative forces. So just, Paddy, what, what are your thoughts on that? And what are your own kind of best bargains? Yeah, I definitely agree with Ippy and Robertson. I think when Robertson was signed, I was expecting Moreno to leave that summer. Okay, I'll say I was hoping to see Moreno <laughs> leaving that summer. So I thought Robertson was coming in, right? Okay, we have a nice, cheap second choice left back. And I was hoping we'd sign someone else. But uh, he came in and he was just unbelievable. So he's the best left back in the world, without a doubt. Like people talk about Alfonso Davies, but he's just, he's not a patch on Robertson in terms of defensive attributes and also his, his um, goal contributions going forward. So. I think getting a world a world class left back for by the time he leaves, hopefully he'll have ten good seasons with us. Um yeah. for seven million or something, that's it's unbelievable, really. After that, he you think of bargains like I mean Virgil van Dijk's been a bargain at seventy five million pounds, which is unbelievable to think. Allison as well, considering he costs less than Kepa, um, he's been a bargain. But I know what you mean in terms of actual a cheap player. I think Coutinho has to go in there, was it eight point five million or something and sold for I think we're getting the full 142 million from Barcelona. So I think that's, yeah. I know he didn't yeah. actually win anything for us or with us, but um, I think just that, that general, that when you're bringing in that much money, it's, it's, he has to go down as a bargain. And um, after that, I think, yeah, Hippie Robertson and, and Coutinho would be my probably three, my three top picks. You know what? I would have Sammy Hoopia, but I am going to be different. Um, so I'm going to be greedy and take four. Um, I, um, I would right. say, uh, I would say, uh, I absolutely agree with the Andy Robertson pickup. Um, and also Kevin Stewart went the other way, not as part of the same deal, but we essentially got Andy Robertson for, I think, a million quid or something like that. If you yeah. counter in both fees, so like that is utterly ridiculous um he's so well-rounded uh he's likable in the dressing room he's a he's an absolute tiger on the pitch he's always got a bit of fight in him but he very rarely does he do something really stupid um he is great going forward he's just he's just a fantastic wingback uh sammy hoopia i mean like you know being picked up from like the eric like will willem i don't know how you willem Wilhelm, uh, maybe? Not sure. Wilhelm, is it? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, but uh, being picked up from the Eredivisie for two and a half million, I think, and going on to be one of Europe's premier centre-halves, like, uh, he was he was just brilliant and scored some fantastic goals as well. Um, yeah, I, I have so much time for Sam Ubia. And I'm going to throw in an option from left field, last of all, and that is Joe Gomez. Picked That's up a, for great show. Great picked show. up for three and a half million quid from Charlton Athletic. Um, got thrown into the team at left back. 
started off pretty well before his injury, then played at right back for a while when um, when Trent was injured and Lovren would come in. And then he played at centre-half and Liverpool's best performances have been when Joe Gomez and Virgil van Dijk have been partnered. I think if he had um, a better injury history, I think he would be, without a shadow of a doubt, Liverpool's um, best bargain ever. And I think if he can kick that and he can go on to the levels that I, I think he can, there are some people who disagree with me. And yes, he's a bit positionally suspect at times. But I think if he can kick the injuries, which are mostly impact injuries rather than muscular, yeah. um, I think he could go down as Liverpool's best ever signing pound for pound. I think yeah, as well, I like you say, a lot of people kind of label Gomez and Matip in the same bracket in terms of injury prone, but it's it's not true because a lot of Gomez's injuries, like you said, have been impact injuries. They're not things you can account for. It's not that his body is like necessarily susceptible to muscle injuries or, or that kind of thing, whereas Matic would be. It's just that, unfortunately, on more than one occasion, he's had what probably the worst types of injuries you can have. The, the injury this, this time around, there still seems to be a bit of secrecy about how he even how he even got that injury, because obviously it was away on inter- international. So fingers crossed he can come back and be the same player, because like you say, I think the statistics speak for themselves in terms of goals conceded when Gomez and Van Dijk are paired together. And I don't think Gomez lost a game for Liverpool for a good proportion of last season, because obviously he wasn't in the team that eventually did lose that game to Watford. Um so yeah, fingers crossed that he he comes back and is just as fine as Van Dijk. Doesn't get as much kind of press as Van Dijk as well, does he? No, it's just on Gomez. I think like he's he's twenty three. Like that's unbelievable. He's younger than Nat Phillips. He's a few months older than Diodo Pumacano, who everyone is raving about as the best young centre back in the world. Like Joe Gomez is better than him. Like maybe maybe he's no, he's better than him. I actually think I think he's better than he's a better defender than Diodo Pumacano. So like. It's actually insane how under the radar he goes, I think. Yeah, absolutely agree. Well, that's it for this week, folks. Thank you, Max and Paddy, for your company. We'll be back next week to preview the weekend's fixture. So we've got a week off next week. I think it's Sheffield United next up after that. So fingers crossed for a win in the derby to round off what's been a great week for Liverpool so far. You can stay in touch with all our content here at Anfield Central by visiting the Anfield Central website, which is anfieldcentral.co.uk, and our Twitter, which is Anfield underscore Central. Thanks, guys, and we'll see you next week.